We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are things? I am very, very good. I mean, look, it has not been a great week for anyone in America who gives a shit about like life in general. So I am doing well under the circumstances. I, I don't want to get too ebullient here because that's the spirit. Yes, that's Nothing right. like asking that question and having someone immediately backtrack on their answer within seconds of starting to say that they're doing fine. Yeah, because I was like, well, wait a second, I can't be doing, I can't be doing that well. It's a tough week in America, plus the rewatchables. You know, it was, the one, it's, it was one, of those, one of those kinds of weeks. Uh, to that end, and I don't want to belabor the point for too long because um, you know, Roth, and I, Roth and I and our guests are, 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 are going to talk about the NBA mainly, but uh, over on the Defector main page at Defector.com, uh, our own Chris Thompson uh, posted a number of links you can donate to uh, for abortion funds, and our own Kelsey McKinney and Laura Wagner wrote a brilliant op-ed that published on Wednesday morning uh, about uh, the Supreme Court uh, SCOTUS uh, abortion leak. So uh, go see all of that uh, and go patronize those funds. I've already done so, and frankly, uh, I will have to do so again Many, many times. I know this is only the beginning of the fight, and uh, you should be ready for that as well. Now, to other boring random crap. Time it's Patrick Redford. Hi, wow. Patrick Redford. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. The author of San Francisco, best-selling <laughs> yeah. California ologist, Patrick Redford. Uh, by the way, Patrick, I am coming to. Uh, I'm coming to the Bay Area. This month, like in two weeks. Wow, this is breaking news. Is that while we'll all be in New York or after? <laughs> no, no, no. We're all going to go to New York. And everyone can listen to this. It's totally important to them. We're all going to be <laughs> in New York for our defector thing. But then I have to go on assignment for SF Gate the next week. And I have to spend the entire week in San Francisco. San Francisco I, Gate. Nice. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I am the San Francisco treat. This is, I'm going to be the last person on staff to get the experience of meeting up with Ray Ratto, Gabe Fernandez, and <laughs> one other defector staffer at like an Italian restaurant <laughs> and just eating appetizers. Yeah. It's really frustrating because I think I want to do it more than anyone else, and yet somehow I'm going to be last. Yeah, the Ray Ratto uh, experience is delightful. Um, people always recognize him. If you would go out in public with Ray in any place in greater Northern California, someone will come up to him and just be like, hey, hey, big fan. He's just like, okay, cool. Fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's got that level of celebrity too, where like people say hello to him so he can be rude to them. Yeah, like that's what it. they want. They're like, "Can you just tell me to to fuck off?" With that, I'm a huge fan of your work, by the way. Yeah, the Rickles energy is just off the charts yeah, with Rad. I the I first met him at Game Three of the 2019 NBA Finals in the in the press area of the Oracle, which was a fucking dump. And oh, yeah. so I go over. I'm. I'm like, I'm doing work. Like, I'm on assignment. I have to profile Stephen A. Smith for GQ. And I see, I see, I, it's someone who is clearly Ray Ratto. Only Ray Ratto looks like fucking Ray Ratto. So I'm like, I'm like, should I go say hi to him? Because I'm staring at him. And like, you ever like, you ever recognize somebody and you're staring at them and you realize you're very conscious of the fact that I am staring at this person and they're going to think that I'm like, I want to punt them down and like slice them open. And like wear them as like a fucking hat. Like yeah, that, that yeah, feeling oh, yeah, we all yeah. have for sure. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. I'm glad that's you right. Am I making a universal weird, does this human person think emotion. I want to wear them around? <laughs> like in a weird so, way, you know. In a so, weird way, not. So like, yeah. I did. I I went up to Rado and I murdered him, and then I wore him as a hat. That's <laughs> no, he was very he was very gracious. He's always far more gracious than uh than I expect. So it would be nice to see him again. Now that end, uh, while I am in San Francisco, it is entirely possible. Uh, that there will be uh, a lot of NBA energy around that town because I just watched the Warriors and Grizzlies uh, play the other night in what has been easily by far the best uh, series of the semifinal round. But let's talk about all of the NBA playoffs because, Patrick, you are here for that. How are you enjoying the NBA playoffs so far, Patrick? It's a very deep question, very it's, hard. One. It's been a great time. I've watched almost every game. Um Except for basically anything having to do with the Miami Heat, just because they've played, yeah. you know, the Hawks and then a fake version of the Sixers. But um, I've had an amazing time, and I hope I hope we get some upsets tonight because for a while it was looking like these second round series might be kind of dismal, um, and you know they're all very enticing matchups on paper, and so it's been it's been really fun, you know. Is Phoenix yeah. Dallas really that enticing on paper? Yeah, um, just because like Dallas's route to victory. He necessarily requires Luca to just go freak mode every single time he steps on the court. Um, and that's like a very fun dynamic. Like 
to have someone who's clearly the best player in the series on the lesser team, it's it's like not it's not exactly the same as like Jaw versus the Warriors, but it's a somewhat similar dynamic where like for the upset to happen, you have to have this incredible outlier performance from a guy who's totally capable of it. Um, and really, I mean, their real problem is defense, but that's kind of boring. But yeah, it's, it's kind of even that. Yeah. It's also not wrong to say that like they kind of do need him to score forty or more points to be. In yeah. It. And even Which that's is, not a guarantee. Like it would still, you could still have a Mike Trout situation going on there. Yeah, he just he just did score forty five, and it was like, and they lost by seven, but it was pretty clear throughout that entire game that <laughs> Dallas was never going to win. Right. Phoenix is just unreal, man. Uh, let's. Uh, I I, I want to go back to the East because you know what? I have a question list, and so I'm just going down the question list first. Uh, the Nets are gone. Ben Simmons never showed up. I want to talk about Ben Simmons because we. We sort of deliberately, we talked about him in the beginning, like starting last year when he, when he fucking bailed uh, against the Hawks and then, you know, began the saga that culminated in him being traded to the Nets. He never played for the Nets. Do you feel, Patrick, there was any veracity to the shit that he got from takeovers out there when he did not suit up uh, to play for the Nets in uh, the playoffs, even though there were hints that he would do so? Or was it unfair to Ben Simmons? I think I think to a certain degree, um, it, it it is it is somewhat fair that he got you know a certain amount of shit because he is on like something approaching a max contract and he didn't play all year and there was never a real explanation given. Though I also kind of think that leaking in this really strange way to Woj that he was going to play in Game Four while they were already down 3-0 in a series they had no hope of winning, to right. me kind of felt like a bit of a just like a bit of a bus throwing under or something someone got their wires crossed um i mean you see it in the way that Woj had to launder all this stuff from rich paul the day after like trying to walk this very fine line between saying it's not his fault i messed up the original thing there was just like was, the whole thing was very strange um though it, really, it was wild to see people like you know reggie miller just go after ben simmons like you know when we don't really know what's going on yeah, that was the part of it that I found distasteful beyond the like the usual sort of woge stuff where you're like laundering the interest of some party or other in kind of like that weird craven like scoops guy language where you're sort of it's like like reading like the terms and conditions of like be signing up for a website or something where you're like here what heretofore like how does that have anything to do with him coming back but like the everybody that has it in their job description to kick someone's ass when they don't like do exactly what they're supposed to do was getting like a little too zesty and vigorous about it where Simmons was concerned in my opinion. Stephen A like, went Steve, all out. Stephen A yeah, was like, like he Stephen is a disgrace. A was, he is right. history's greatest disgrace. Was Which great. was like, I mean, I know that that's part of like Stephen A's job because he's on TV for like nine consecutive hours every day. And, <laughs> it's like, his entire job. It's not part right. of it. And so like, yeah, you need some loaded pauses and you need some sort of like moments where it seems like he's gonna cry for some reason. Like that's, that's, that's what he does. Yeah. <laughs> but but I don't know. Like it didn't seem like there was any real insight in it. It was just like that thing that kind of happens where you have identified somebody who's very clearly like not even a villain, but like just kind of like somebody that can be bullied with impunity. And it doesn't make Ben Simmons like a more likable character in this. It just is a sort of thing where like as Patrick said, like I don't know why you would take a guy that you know, is, like, a long-term investment for the organization if you're serious about him. And, like, go to the, you know, trouble of destabilizing him before a game that you're pretty clearly going to lose, whether he plays or not. Well, also, I think, the, I think the lack of clarity is a big factor in this, and it almost feels like it was a deliberate lack of clarity. Like, no one really knows what the fuck is going on with Ben Simmons. So you can essentially entertain any theory you want. You can right. entertain that yeah. he, is, he has a genuine mental illness. And... I can tell you firsthand that having a mental illness does not exempt you from criticism. We, we are, we have progressed as a society, or at least certain parts of society, to being very sensitive when we're talking about people with mental illness, particularly athletes. Um, but that does not mean that you can't also be a prick or a dilettante when you when you are suffering from such maladies. But the other thing is that he may simply have the yips, like he bailed on a fucking dunk. And I, I don't know that I'm willing to just go right to, oh, well, he has PTSD. I don't know. Like, I, and that, that, that he has a, 
a back problem. Okay, I, I've had back problems, so I, I understand that. But none of it feels, it all feels so obscured enough that anybody can build any story they want out of it, and that's sort of a problem. You know, it's, I hate to say yes to control the narrative, but uh, I don't know. That's just a shitty thing to say. I, I don't know what else to say. I forget who reported this, um, and it was it was you know extremely vague in the way that all of this stuff is. But, but I think it was maybe a month or so before the Harden trade, which really kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. And I think it was one of the ESPN people who reported that like something pretty serious happened in his. At least they hinted towards something maybe pretty serious happening in his family. Um, which was never elaborated on. And that seems, I don't know, like a somewhat relevant factor, but like, we don't really know what's going on. So it's, you know, not, not the best exercise. Also, like, what would he have done? He hadn't played in a five on five game in 12 months. You're going to throw him into a game to play like a few front court, like backup minutes, getting like just run through screens by Jason Tatum or whatever. Like what, what do you gain from that? And yeah, not an easy team to play your first game against in a year. This is the thing with the the nets that I think is like, and we had good posts on this on the site. It's all, I don't need to go over the, the stuff again, but the extent to which they were not a basketball team and are not in most ways, like a credible organization right now, is kind of remarkable given the volume of talent they have at the very, very top of their roster. Yeah. But they just never really felt like they figured it out to me. Like not in that series. Did they make any adjustments that they needed to do? Obviously the roster was not set up for that matchup, but you know, the Celtics are tough. They, they're going to be tough on, you know, any team that's squared up against them, but they just don't, there doesn't seem to be a plan there in the way that I feel like if you were to go back a few years ago, that it seemed like there was that like the beginning, like basically from the moment they fire Kenny Atkinson and commit to like having a, you know, like sort of a star driven organization, they seem like they just like rocketed backwards in time to the, like that when they had like KG and Paul Pierce with like just mothballs falling out of their ears <laughs> while they were playing, like, playing for them. like it's just to be back on that after having gone to the trouble of like, built a real floor in the organization. It seems like they've, I don't know, not improved in the way speaking that you of, think Speaking of real floors, they they had an actual, like, wood-colored court for one of the <laughs> games at you home. You didn't like the was... one that looked like they were in a fucking Underworld movie? No, it was great. Werewolves against vampires? It's the one time I watched a Nets home game, I didn't get an epileptic seizure. It was very, very <laughs> nice. Now, I want to go back for a moment, Patrick, because you made me realize that, you know, I was sitting there, and I, I, I'm sitting here, and I'm, I'm talking about how, you know, it's on Ben Simmons' to provide us with more information so that we can have proper takeage about that. But that's, that's almost sort of a modern privilege and demand where everyone expects to know everything about everyone all the time. And if you don't tell everybody everything about yourself, you are somehow, you are somehow being, uh, you're being squirrely. You're, you're being suspect and everyone has the right to suspect you, but really you do have the right to not tell everybody what the fuck's going on with yourself. You know, ideally, yeah. Um, I, th- th- I think Lowe has talked about this a little bit, but the new CBA, I think, is up for renewal next December, maybe this December, at some point soon. Um, and there's a lot of talk that owners are going to push for something like a Ben Simmons clause, like tying salary to games played, not in like a direct way, but like trying to carve out some proviso for something, you know. To There's no fucking way that you knew. I mean, the, that, that's, like, that's like a core issue for the union. So it'll be interesting to see whether – or not, the owners are really going to war, willing to go to war over that, which I don't think they will. But Let's something. go to the other side of that equation with the Sixers, because they look fucked at the moment without Joel Embiid, who I assume he will come back for that series, but I can't guarantee it. And more interesting to me is that James Harden, the guy they traded for, he looks kind of finished, Patrick. Am I, am I wrong? What the fuck happened with James Harden? He's necessarily finished. Um, it is really remarkable how... He can't beat anyone off the dribble or finish at the rim anymore. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is like, you know, he's 32. He's played, I think, I looked this up last night. He's played the third or fourth most playoff minutes of any active player. Um, And he's had this lingering hamstring thing all year, which like, you know, kind of is compounded by his being in his mid thirties-ness. And yeah, that, I think that team is just something. DeAndre Jordan is just unplayable. Yeah. They, and that's the thing that's kind of weird about it. Somebody was making this point the other day that, like, if you were to take, like, not even the good players from the Clippers, if you just, like, swap in, like, Isaiah Hartenstein and Luke Kennard, the Sixers are 25% better. They just don't have, like, playable depth once you get past, you know, like, beyond, like, getting past Embiid or whatever. I mean, because obviously, like, you take Joel Embiid off any 
team's roster for a few games. They're significantly worse as a result. But the step down from him to DeAndre Jordan and B-ball Paul Reed, and then also you put a coach in position who can't identify that DeAndre Jordan is just basically embalmed and should be like a, you know, absolute emergency, like end of the half foul giver type. Like, I mean, whatever. I think Embiid will play in the series, and I think it'll get more competitive when he's playing. But, like, again, kind of a poorly constructed roster and a stubborn coach, and, like, that's a a season that's ending probably sooner than it should as a result of all of that. There is an art to construction where, you know, I've I've been reared on the idea that to win an NBA title, you need X number of stars, like two or three, right? You need one galactic superstar. You definitely need a sidekick. And you probably need a third guy who is, like, really good down in the paint. Like, you do need depth past that. Like, Memphis just showed. They have John Morant, who's fucking amazing. But then they have other guys. Like, you need like you need some guys who, like, you can't have a thing where, you know, if Ja decides to sit for a breather for five minutes, the team's going to automatically, like, have a minus 20 differential, like, out on the floor. Yeah, there's a lot of Furkan Korkmaz um, in, the in the monitors. and It's a very heavy Korkmaz experience, and that's something that everybody should know before you watch a Sixers game, is if you have a Korkmaz allergy, or even if a sensitivity to Furkan Korkmaz, uh, this, the, this, da- the dander is overwhelming. This Furkan Korkmaz, man. Oh, Thank you. Um, I, I think a real, a real issue here is, like, even if Embiid comes back, he has a concussion, he has a torn thumb, he has a broken orbital, so... It's like you can't really work out and like stay in shape with, you know, the concussion. And so he's going to come that back attitude. against the Miami Heat who just love to punch and fight and scream. And like Bam Adebayo is like yeah. probably the best defensive big man in the game right now. And so it's just like it's going to be such an uphill battle. Um, it's just kind of a poison matchup. I uh, respect that Patrick has taken the same uh, route that I have in watching the playoffs, which is like so I'm, I'm an older person. I only get like maybe 45 or 50 minutes of usable brain uh, activity in a given, you know, stretch of day or, or weekend. I can't waste any of that watching the heat. Like I'm only alive for so many more years. And so I like, I'll get to it. Like when the heat are in the Eastern conference finals, I'll watch that, but I'm in no rush to put myself through this shit. Like the, how did, what was the calculus for you in just deciding that you didn't need to do this? Was it all the matchup or are you just kind of like aware that there's only so much Jimmy Butler that you you can fit into your, your day to day? It's really just like, okay, Heat games start and end when the sun is high in the sky here on the West Coast. That is true. I got shit to do. I got three other games to watch. I'm not going to watch, you know, the Hawks uh, just run up against this wall of the Heat for 48 minutes and do nothing. Um, so, you know, I'll watch them play the Sixers. Sure. Why not? You know, there's two games on tonight. Um, but they're, that team just grinds every possession out. Um, like Tyler Hero is basically the only guy who can, like, beat someone off the dribble. Unless uh, Dave McKenna's yeah. boy, Victor Oladipo, is, like, healthier than he seems. So it's just like, you know, when when they play the Bucks or the Celtics, that's going to be a great series. So, you know, I'll, I'll reserve my, my Miami Heat watching until then. Yeah. Our own uh, Luis Paez Pumar is just outraged by this discussion and will come murder you understand for the power of superior me. fitness? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So then let's not talk about the Heat, but let's talk about the other series, which is the Bucks and the, uh, and the Celtics. If the Celtics, well, let's start... With the Bucs instead. Are they going to do us a favor, Redford? Are they going to rid us of the Celtics for good, these playoffs? Because I really, I can't handle the Celtics, like, advancing much farther than this. I don't want that. This is the biggest philosophical divergence on the show, I think. I mean, you, for, you know, mostly defensible reasons, just loathe the Celtics in concept and execution. Um, And, you know... I think because I'm I'm able to disentangle myself from you know the Boston Simmonsness of it all. Uh, they rule, man. Like I love Marcus Smart, Brown, and Tatum. Just really, really got it going on now. Um, and that game last night was pretty eye opening. Um, yeah, they they beat the Bucks asses. Like yeah. which was, and in more or less the same proportion that the Bucks beat their asses in the first game, which was like, I, to me, I think that first one because. I mean, Giannis didn't shoot well. He shot terribly last night. I mean, they clearly, like, they they defended him very well, and he still had a triple-double, and he still had, you know, whatever, the highlight that was, as Dan McQuain said, basically, like, what you would see if, like, a D1 college player was playing in just a YMCA (laughs) run against a bunch of dads where he spiked the ball off the backboard to himself and dunked it. it. Like, so it never occurred to me that it was possible to actually stop Giannis, and yet that's, like, kind of what the the Celtics 
defense was built to do. They do have the guys to do it. And if they do it, and you're leaving a, a Bucks team that doesn't have Chris Middleton to find somebody else to beat you with, like, yeah, they could win that series, I guess. Well, I really appreciate this insight from both of you. Benedicts, Arnold. <laughs> really <laughs> well, awesome. Well, I, I think to Patrick's point, like, obviously, like, again, as somebody who did grow up in the Northeast, like, I have, like, a, a real strong reaction to the Celtics just... Like in like it's a it's a visceral thing. Like I don't think I was like ever taught this. It's just sort of a, a physical response. Yes, uh, an instinct. That's, that's it. If you put them in any other uniform, they're they're great. They're a super good team that plays really hard and really well together. Smart is as likable in how annoying he is as any player I think I've ever seen. Like he's basically like if Patrick Beverly was also a brilliant basketball yeah. player and not theatrical about like trying to be Patrick Beverly. Yeah, I, but, I was, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. They're I, without Smart for a little bit, though, right? He might. I think he'll be back for game three. Um, and I was talking to, um, I was watching the Celtics the other day with a friend. We were talking about, you know, they had this sudden transformation where they were around 500 or below 500 um, as they rounded the corner into January. And since then, have basically been the 96 Bulls. And we're just trying to yeah. figure out, like, why. Um, and his take, which I think is ultimately correct, was basically just that everyone became Marcus Smart where they just always make the right pass. They defend hard as hell as a unit. And just like the thing I like about watching them is except for maybe the Suns, they seem like the most cohesive team. I mean, they have a seven or eight man rotation. Everyone just flies around and does their job. Um, and like the contrast with the Nets was just so telling because the Nets are just yeah. from AU offense and the Celtics are just like, you know, always making the right pass. It's so fun. Yeah. There was so much uh, like bad nineties energy to those Nets, uh, to that Nets team. I, I did not like it. I mean, the Celtics, it was, it was fascinating that they knew where they each knew where everyone else was and where they were going. Like they, they had a good sense of one another and their crowd was fucking fantastic. But I also, I hate their guts and I don't yeah. want them to be. Yeah. Well, it's definitely true to Drew's point too, that there's like, that that really stood out. You're like, look at these guys. Like everybody's touching the ball. It looks like they have plays. And, like, that shouldn't be that remarkable a thing. They're a basketball team. Like, that's, like, the baseline expectation of what you'd get from them. But with the Nets, it was, like, you know, one of their two stars dribbling at the top. And then, like, everybody else kind of, like, standing at the corner, like, heaving like an NPC in a video game. Like, that's grim when you stack it up against actual good basketball. Yeah, I do I do feel bad turning into Norman Dale with this shit, but I love seeing, you know, three passes and, and the ball never gets dribbled, like, before someone takes a shot like it is aesthetically pleasing basketball to watch everyone turning into Marcus Smart is both a really good description of what made the Celtics good and a, a kind of a frightening thing to consider mentality wise like just like what the the vibe would be like and how intense that would be but the alternative is becoming like the doing the like if they all got the Kobe brain that Jason Tatum seemed to have early in the year and that's like then you're trading guys well let's let's years. stay on that because that's far more interesting for me to talk about Patrick if the Celtics lose this series, do you think they can ever win anything of note with the core that they currently have? Definitely, yeah. Um, Tatum and Brown say no. both do everything. Um, and Tatum's, you know, evolved as this legitimate, instead of just like a scorer, he's like the offensive engine. He does everything he creates, and Brown's like the perfect complimentary player. Um, and if they just get one more, like if they can upgrade the Peyton Pritchard spot, like I think they're... Yeah, they're flying. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about the West uh, before we get into the fun bag and all that other stuff. One break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Still talking about the NBA playoffs with Patrick Redford. Let's go over to the West. Um, let's watch the Warriors uh, really try very, very hard uh, to come back against Memphis last night, uh, only to come up a little bit short because of John Morant. And I wanted to ask you, Redford, if you thought the Warriors were the Warriors again, but I, I kind of know the answer to this, but I want your answer before I go yammering like an asshole about it. They're in kind of this weird space where they have all of their guys back. Um, and for once, they have a supporting cast. Not for once, but, you know, they have a supporting cast who knows how to play Warriors ball. Like, you know, the, the Kelly Oubre teams just did not operate in the same brain level as Draymond demands. But right. at the same time, like, Clay, Curry, and Draymond played, I think, one minute together this season um, in the regular season. So, like, they're kind of putting the puzzle pieces back together for the first time in, like, three years. 
but also those puzzle pieces are as proven as anything. Um, so it's pretty fascinating. And I think, honestly, I think they shot 18% from three. And so I think if they just shoot normally, they win last night. So they were, they were atrocious from three. Yeah, they're still the worst. And I, and as I was watching them, it occurred to me that it felt like, um, I felt like sort of the second wave of Jordan titles where if they were going to have another, like a sort of second phase of their dynasty, that they were going to have to recalibrate and play a more wily sort of brand of basketball, a less exciting one uh, than the one they had with Durant and just just scoring 100 billion points a game and all that shit, yeah. that, they would have to, that they would have to bog down a little bit. And I got that sensation from them for the first two games of the series, but I don't know if that's something that they actually want to do or... Or, or that I, th- I think it might be a process for them to get to that point, and I don't know if that happens this playoffs or not. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think honestly, the Gary Payton injury is pretty big for them, um, just because he his whole role. I mean, he's been starting for them in this series, and his right. whole role is just to stay in front of Jaw, which he's good at. Like, I mean, yeah, that guy's so he's one athletic. of like three people in the NBA that can do it consistently. And I mean, Peyton's also like one of two guys on the Warriors who's like a plus athlete at this point in their career. Um, the other guy is, you know, 19. So I, th- right. I think, I think without him, we're going to see a lot more jaw. Um, but the thing about the Warriors is they're like, I think they're maybe the best, no, not best, but they're like an incredible team defense. So like while they, you know, Draymond is this defensive mastermind. They basically just never miss a rotation, um, which is like less useful against a team like the Grizzlies, whose whole thing is jaw is just going to beat his man. And then it all kind of flows from there. So it's a, it's a, it's a perfect matchup and, you know, the Grizzlies crowd is just like, they're so fun to watch. It's it's the best crowd in yeah, the sport. It's so, like, the people watching is just, Mwah! Yeah, I keep telling myself that the Grizzlies are, like, one complimentary scoring star away from being, like, a real contender or whatever. But then, like, that's what I say when I'm not watching them. And then when I'm watching them play at home, I'm like, yeah, actually, I can see it. Yeah. Like, why not? Yeah, because the complimentary score to Ja is Ja. You can just right. Do I was that. like, oh, so another guy that's gonna. So if like Ja scored like twenty seven points, and then there's another guy that scored twenty points, like that would be. But what if you could just mush all that together, and one guy scores forty seven, and then the other guy's just Brandon Clark, <laughs> and he has cool hair, like that would that that also works. Like when it works. I do have to say that I've developed a uh, a latter day appreciation of Draymond because you know I used to hate him for the same reasons everyone. Uh, he kicks guys in the nuts. Uh, he's got a stupid face. <laughs> But he's such a fucking great passer. It's like he passes so well that his teammates aren't even ready, like for how good his passes are going to be. Yeah. And they've been playing with him for years. So it's like yeah, every the Warriors, like they've had this since the 2015 title team. They turn the ball over constantly, which seems yeah. bad on paper. But then you watch them, and all the turnovers are just like Steph or Draymond creates this perfect pass that no one else sees, including the guy they're right. passing it to. And that's like it's an true. obvious dunk if the guy just turns his head. And so like. To a certain extent, like Kerr's talked about this. He's like, we don't really care. Like, we, we almost want to move towards the thing that makes us turn the ball over more because it's like part of our sauce. <laughs> Which is kind of funny to consider, especially because as you were saying, like they do seem like they've kind of like through process of elimination over like a couple of years of basically being out of it due to injury stuff. They have managed to create this like a really very good second unit. I mean, I think in Jordan Poole, they've like, created something much more like a, a complimentary star than like a, a sort of backup or, you know, sort of like spot filling type guy. And then, you know, who knows where Jonathan Kaminga fits, who knows where like all the other guys that they sort of developed or in the case of Peyton identified during their years of basically churning the roster and losing two out of every three games. And yet like there's still this other identifiable thing that you can only like become a warrior after like, the 10th time that Steph Curry has thrown a pass off the back of your head because you don't know what's going on. <laughs> but like that, like there's, it seems like to play this style of basketball, like you need the, whatever, the 10,000 hours of like just getting put through that ringer. I, it, it's weird too. Cause it, you know, given where all of these guys are in their careers and given the recent injury stuff that I don't know how much time the warriors have. That's part of like, it's kind of deepened the experience of watching them to me that like, I always have enjoyed watching them play. But I think that call on, like, the second Jordan go-around is, is correct. It's just, like, you don't know how much more of this is, is actually promised one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you, get, you get a little more of an appreciation. The, the, hater, the haterism falls away just a, just a smidge. Just a smidge. Yeah, this is a really enjoyable team. And I think, I don't know, I don't know how much I believe this, but the same Marcus Smart friend 
thinks that something is up with Steph Curry. He's missed like a lot of free throws in these playoffs. And if you look at the shots he's making and missing, you know, he's hitting those like wild contested perimeter ones. He doesn't have to think, but he's missing a lot of open shots. Open ones. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's weird to see alongside clay. Who's kind of just become clay again. Um, Yep. Not at the same level, but he's doing the same things, you know? Yeah, well, Clay he's like shot like shit. and getting the same shots, and they maybe don't go in quite as much. But yeah, he's like playing in a Clay Thompson way. He would he he shot like shit in game two though. Um, yeah, to be yeah fair. two for but twelve all, from three in forty one minutes. Do. That's not good. Uh, speaking of fun uh, teams, the Suns. Uh, you already we we've spoken about the Suns a couple of times on this podcast about just how good they are, and they seem to be head and shoulders above the rest of the league. Patrick, do you believe that to be true? Or do you? Is there anything different about this Suns team against the one versus the one that blew a two-zero lead to the Bucks in last year's finals? What's going to be different this time for them? Really, it's just I I, I saw this in the doc yesterday, and I had to think about it. Um, and it's really just that their young guys have gotten better. You know, Michael Bridges has become this. You know, he was he was a good three and D player last year, but he's like he's kind of got some juice off the bounce and as a cutter. And DeAndre Ayton is just like the perfect modern big man. And he's totally evolved as like, yeah, I love him. It's almost like a defensive playmaker kind of role. Um, mm-hmm. He's so smart. He always knows where to stand. Um, Cam Johnson too, as just this like total, just perfect bench wing. Um, and like, we kind of talked about this with the Celtics, but the Suns know who they are. They know exactly what they're going to do, what their rotations are, who their guys are. Um, and like, their contrast with the Mavericks is not quite like a Nets Celtics thing because the Mavs run actual offense and, you know, they're sort of working with their limitations, but just like the Suns are so coherent. Um, and I was worried about the Booker injury, but he seems fine. Yeah. That is a weird one. Cause that was when it was identified as like a hamstring injury, like in my head, that's like, that should be a month. It might be two weeks. It was two games. And he looked like himself the last game that he was playing. I mean, he was just like sort of doing maybe a little bit less with the ball, but like taking and making Devin Booker shots is like, if he's there doing that, then they're what they were. To me, they're what they were all year, which is the best team in the NBA. It's just like, I I really had like sort of not let myself expect a miraculous recovery from that injury. And it seems like for, you know, obviously knock wood for the time being, that seems to be what it is. Almost like he's a world-class athlete who's built Mm. different than the rest. Yeah. It's kind of a reminder for me. Like one time Mm. I stayed up too late and I wasn't even drinking. And then I had a hangover for three straight days. (laughs) And that was a a similar, similar sort of deal. Uh, Do you think Patrick, um, that Chris Paul brings any real psychic baggage with him to these playoffs and that it would matter in the end? Or is that just, fan shit i don't think so um i i think a lot of the a lot of the chris paul is a choker thing i mean he did have one like obviously horrific game i think a lot of that is hard to disentangle from the doc rivers um kind of losing his mind and highest the highest leverage situations yeah um it, it's fun to see javel mcgee spring around uh i just have, yeah have, you know, he's a if fun the sun's guy. win he gets another ring you gotta love that uh he yep. he had one of the funniest plays of game one where luca got him on a switch luca was doing his thing going to the legs and javel just straight up picked his pocket and ran the length of the court for a jam which was pretty stunning to see yeah but javel mcgee in a way that like very few players like have ever done as dramatically will periodically show these flashes where you're like this person should probably be the best basketball player in the world right <laughs> Yeah. But he's not. He's JaVale McGee instead. And, like, that's fine. He's, like, made a lot of money and he's played, you know, I don't probably 10, 12 years as JaVale McGee. But, yes, like, <laughs> anytime you see him do something like that, which he will do every three games, it uh, it doesn't get any less mind-blowing because he surrounds it with just 100%, like, fresh USDA prime uh, JaVale McGee shit. I think, I think if you've ever played for the Wizards and you leave the Wizards, you take some of that with you. Yeah. And you can't... It, you, the inconsistency just becomes, it goes into your bone marrow. And it's it can't just like an shot. Andre Blatch spore latched in your brain. That <laughs> a thousand percent. <laughs> and I think conversely, if you play with the Warriors, you get the opposing, you know, antibody to that. And so within JaVale, there are these two warring forces, you know. Mm, the two wolves. Within. Yeah, and he's, he's resolved the dialectic. Can I, one thing that you made a point, this is something that we've talked about a lot as a team, but I don't know that we've addressed on the podcast. I think is a really interesting concept in terms of like understanding watching basketball so you were talking about how Aiden always knows where to stand and that's one of those things I don't remember who 
Is it is it's that Kyle, Kyle Wagner, Wagner concept? Is the originator but, of this concept? But yeah. like, can we talk a little bit about what that means? Because I think it's like it's really been useful for me in terms of like figuring out when a team, like again, goes back to the Celtics, like just like knows what they're doing versus when they don't. Yeah. So Do you want to explain? If it? Aiton was on a lesser team, he would be getting the ball more in the post. He'd be getting the ball more at the nail. Um, but like the most beneficial thing he can do for the Suns is space out when needed or, you know, clogging the post for offensive rebounds when needed. Um, and so like you see big men who are so talented, but they either are in, they're way too far out from the hoop to help or they're way too close and they clog everything up for everyone. And it's kind of one of those things where you know it when you see it. Um, he just knows, he simply knows where to stand. And obviously, you know, he's a plus athlete. He's got long arms, you know, he's, he kind of he kind of has an Elijah Wan esque athleticism to him, but really you watch him and you're like that guy's always in the right place. He simply knows where to stand, and I think that's like the hardest thing to teach, but the most important big man skill. Well, can yeah. you even teach it, or is it an instinct? You can only learn it. You cannot teach it. Yeah, <laughs> but I do think it's it's definitely something you see in the negative. I think that's another like really interesting aspect. Like Jaron Jackson, totally skilled player, uh, barely has control of his limbs, does not know where to stand. Yep. I mean, maybe not yet. Yeah. But it is, it's weird too, because it's like, there's guys that have even, I mean, there was some, it's not the DeAndre Jordan that was like a really good, like all NBA guy and stuff. But to see in that Sixers game, there were moments where it was like impossible to identify who he was even supposed to be guarding. Like he was just kind of like in the way that like in old video games, sometimes like a player would just drift off screen for no reason because <laughs> they hadn't written a script for it. Like he was on some like, you know, NBA jam 93 type, just like, peregrinations and that's like you know whatever it's a guy who's had a good career and made hundreds of millions of dollars playing basketball but like maybe also does not have that innate sense of we call that style of defense the westbrook method that's the last thing i'll say on suns mavs is i um i had this thought the other day where i was just like wow luca deandre the number one and number two picks the 2018 draft this is gonna wait wait no luca went three oh wait wait who went two that year jerry jackson oh no Mm. Oh no, Marv! I totally yeah, forgot you about do Marvin a, Bagley. You want to uh, do a Kings download? No, Marv yeah, Bagley. you get no. Kings. Do get Kings? Mark Jackson is one hundred percent going to be the coach of that team next year. Oh, right. you have Great. you have my condolences. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the stupid stuff, uh, I have to throw a bone to you, Roth, uh, and ask you a baseball question. Uh, what the fuck is going on with the baseball and baseball, and why does MLB keep fucking with it? Why can't they leave the ball alone? Great question. Uh, it definitely is not for any reason that has to do with improving the quality of play, as far no. as I can tell. It's always, it's ownership is what it is. So, like, the thing to know about this is that MLB owns Rawlings, which makes the baseballs. This is a newish development in the last, whatever, it's like five or eight years they bought it. And instead of trying to create a baseball that has the same uniform properties across the entire spectrum. They've been, I think it's just because owners and, you know, and Manfred as well, like they like to mess around with things. And this is an area where they can do it without having to seek the union's approval. Or I mean, in most cases without even having to acknowledge that they're doing it at all. And so in this case, the ball changes from one year to the next. And it's some years it's stickier. Some years it is like much harder to hold. Some years it flies further. This year it seems to be flying by design a couple of feet less. And in all of these instances, because the league doesn't acknowledge that it's different, because Rawlings is a private company that doesn't have to answer any questions about what's going on with the ball, everybody just guesses at it. And so it adds this totally stupid and impenetrable element of conspiracy to every season that this was like last year, Pete Alonzo, a resident Florida man on the Mets, who's a, a decently smart dude made the point that like, and he was saying that as if it was a fact, I don't know that it is, but that players believe that the ball is altered to impact that year's free agent class. That if it's a, a class of pitchers, that the ball is made slipperier so that it's, and also, you know, in this case, because they can't use the sticky stuff on their hands anymore, that the ball is harder to hold. Those free agent pitchers have a worse year than maybe they get, they get paid less. Conversely, it works the same way if it's a class of like many shortstops, as it was last year, uh, that they would make the ball like fly less far. Now, I don't think that's true necessarily. I think it, it presupposes a level of competence and forethought on the part <laughs> of owners and the league that uh, I've never seen in evidence. And yet, 
it, there's just enough like ambient fuckery in the monitors that you kind of have to think about it, and that stinks. I mean, it, so it that sounds like, right. Yeah, yeah, and so it's tough because it's like. Of all the things you could be talking about, this is like the one thing you're never going to get an answer to. You're just going to sort of like argue in circles. It, it's a, a real stupid thing that I wish MLB would stop doing. Hey, let's remember a guy. You guys want to yeah. remember a guy? Oh, in honor of the NBA playoffs, Patrick Redford, we're going to remember this guy of the week. It's the Birdman, Chris Anderson. You remember Birdman, Chris Anderson, Patrick? I, do I ever? Yeah. He had a real vibe. Um, he, was, he was sort of in the JaVale school of, shockingly athletic guys who played for the Denver Nuggets, but never quite learned how to put that all together into a, into a serious basketball career. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, he also pulled off one of the great uh, NBA transformations where he was like briefly in the league. as just like kind of a skinny dork. And then he came back two years later and looked like the crazy town guy <laughs> and just, just like completely yeah. had like rebooted his personal style and was like a hundred percent neck tattoo. The full Scott Pollard. We love that. Yeah. That <laughs> he, but, he has a championship yeah, ring, doesn't he? Birdman? Yeah. He must've won one of those with the heat. Yeah. yeah I think he, I think he did. Good for him. He was, he was a fun player. It was always, there was always like, yeah, I, uh, we use the word energy overly ironically uh, a bit too often just all across uh, the culture but like he brought actual energy to game i was like oh oh birdman's in the game oh shit <laughs> he also there was an uncanniness to him like there was a I, I still remember one of like the great I mean, he had like good moments in big games and like always did cool stuff good dunks and blocks when he was in the slam dunk contest there was a great moment where he got up in the camera's face <laughs> and said i think it was birdman's gonna fly yeah and then he missed and, like, uh, six consecutive. Like, he didn't make any of the dunks that he tried in the time that they gave him. Which uh, won, is, a, uh, won a title in twenty short story. Won a title in twenty thirteen. Right? Nice. Won a title. Yep. Uh, we're getting to the fun bag. Uh, my best friend Howard. I let him jump the line with this week's question: Is the margin of athletic dominance between D one and D three college sports consistent across sports? For instance, I'd imagine that the weakest Division one football or basketball team would still crush a top tier uh, Division three team. But what about in other sports? Could the best D3 lacrosse, soccer, or field hockey team compete against a middling D1 opponent? Patrick, what do you think? I kind of think the framing of this question is right on, because I think football and basketball, just the athletic delta between someone playing for, like, Louisville and someone playing for Sacramento State, State. they're Division one, yeah. but, you know, someone like that. I think that's just going to be so crushing in, like, football especially. But I kind of think as that becomes a less relevant factor, like I could see, you know, a D3 soccer team hanging with UCSB or whatever. Yeah, I think in, even in baseball, I think that there's an element of that, that it's just a question of like a good baseball team that makes few mistakes and is like a D3 team. There's still guys throwing in like the high 80s in that. I mean, like, which is like not as many of them as there are in D1 and stuff like that. But yes, I think that there's there's a way that that could work. Football being the one that, really i think at the highest level like even like a lower end d1 team is still like it's just going to be a lot bigger and stronger i think than the average d3 team but where yeah. that matters less in sports i think the um distinction is is less dramatic i have to tell you that i don't agree with either of you as Ooh, someone who okay. went well you would you're the one guy that this is good uh, played well first of all yes i played division three football and we would have gotten fucking trash but also <laughs> if the Kobe college soccer team had played like indiana they would have gotten fucking smoked. And like uh, Howard and I went to uh, went to school with our friend Steve. Uh, he was a swimmer. He went to go on to swim at Texas. And he was like, he was demonstrably better than everyone else at school in terms of swimming. So if he went against the Colby swim team, he'd fucking beat everybody by like 19 laps. Like I just, I don't, I think that it it actually is rather consistent. Like I'm sure there are some sports where it's maybe less so, like fucking fencing or something like that. But otherwise, I think like I, th I think the margin, the margins are, are still pretty out there. If you're a really, really good fucking athlete, and you play a college sport, and you're in a D1 sport, you're going to be better than someone who is essentially, you know, D3 is essentially walk-on level of shit. I, I'm, I don't, I don't agree with either of you. I guess that's fair enough. I'm remembering the experience of like, did either of you have like a like a random D1 athlete in your high school that was like on a team that you were on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I had a guy, he was the son of a, like a, a, like an Olympic medalist, like Bob Kino, great dude that I ran cross country with. To say that I ran cross country with Bob Kino is an incredible insult to Bob <laughs> Kino. 
that like <laughs> like we had the same uniforms, you know, like his just looked cooler because it was on a guy that was like gonna be a scholarship athlete, you know. I think he went to University of Arizona. Like whereas I was mostly like running because it was like I could talk. There was like two other guys that I could just talk about the Beastie Boys with at the very like back of practice, and that uh, yeah, like but like they're different. You know, the, like the levels of it are such that like maybe that is worth bearing in mind. Like I wasn't going to run D3 cross country either, but I, I sure came a lot closer to that than I did to doing what Bob did. On the uh, on the basketball team in my high school was Brandon Williams, who went on to play at Davidson. And he was so fucking good that just watching him fuck around like in pregame was amazing. Or, you know, like I don't hang around with people who can just casually dunk, right? That's not like that's not like a normal part of my existence. But so being around someone casting with two of them right now, yeah. So so being with someone who could do that, and I'm in the same gym as him, and I go to the same school that I'm, I'm like I'm like I'm proud. I'm like I go to school with him. He's on. I'm not even on the fucking team, right? I'm just like, but it there was like this odd vicarious thrill. It really is cool to to be around like kick ass athletes and to like. Like, I was in the same hallway at Michigan with, like, Chuck Winters, who played strong safety, who went on to get charged with assault. But I was like, hey, that guy's in my hall before he got arrested. Patrick, who is yours? If I uh, in, in high school, we were – our uh, our Sacramento high school was in the same athletic conference as Grant, which is, like, the school where, like, Devontae Booker, Shaq Thompson, uh, Dante oh, Stallworth came out of. Right. Oh, my um, God. And so our school, McClatchy, I think we didn't win a football game for like nine years. And so every time Grant would come, they would score. They would play like their freshmen and just beat us 84 zip. Um, but I also ran track against all those guys. Um, and just watching like Shaq Thompson just beast everyone like the 110 hurdles was just so fun. You know, it's yeah. just like my friend Alec, who's pretty good against this, like clearly going to the NFL guy. It was so fun to watch. Yeah. Uh one more question. This is probably a Roth question, Reader Brian says. I'm a long-suffering Mariners fan. The past 20 years have literally set the professional sports record for futility, but this is a fun team right now, and I'm dangerously close to believing that this is the year. Can you please crush my optimism and give me some reasons why I should stop believing? Roth, I don't know you as someone who is usually pessimistic, but can you help out Brian here? <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I'll dig deep and try to find a reason why someone who cares about the Mariners uh, should be realistic. <laughs> uh, they actually, I mean, to me, they seem really good. I think uh, the thing with the Mariners that I would have a hard time with if I had been following them the last few years is just believing that they're actually committing this time to to trying to do it because this, they've had like maybe the most... GM GM in any sport in Jerry Depoto like the guy just loves to trade loves to churn the roster loves to um you know win on the margins and do deals which is like cool if you're if that's what you're into but the team has just been crappy the entire time that he's been in charge of it last year they were a little bit they were spunky down the end but they were not really that good they just sort of like got the holy ghost at the right moment this year they're starting to like the players that their farm system was leveraged upon are now like making it to the majors. They haven't been good yet. Jared Kalanick, who they got from the Mets, might actually be bad. Like, might be kind of like a Brandon Wood type scenario which from the Mets. A, a bad player. Yeah. Well, it's weird that whole trade. It's like because Kalanick is swinging and missing at seventy percent of the pitches he faces. The Mets bought out Robinson Cano and DFA'd him this week. So there's a possibility that no one won that trade, which is really remarkable, which is real uh, Mets-Mariners singularity. Uh, very few organizations could have paired up just that well. To me, I think with the Mariners, though, uh, the real challenge there is just, like, whether they go for it. And I'm seeing indications that they are. Like, it just seems like the deal that they made with the Reds before the season and bring in, like, Jesse Winker and stuff, when you're getting players that you don't strictly need just because they're good and because bad teams are giving them away. That's what you want to see from your organization. It shows more commitment than I've seen from DePoto, you know, during the entire time he's been there. It's hard to sort of believe in a team when they've been bad for 20 years or they haven't made the playoffs for 20 years. And I don't think the, you know, the Mariners are going to win the World Series this year or anything. But I, I guess this is like the emotional note that I would sound on this is that I was watching the uh, the Pelicans in the NBA playoffs, and I think they're going to, I hope, if Zion plays for them, that they'll get a lot better. I see, uh, you know, there's obviously, like, a good team stirring there. They got a good coach. They like playing together. They play super-duper hard. And they did a lot of the hard stuff in terms of identifying talent and just picking it off the curb and making it useful. 
like that good teams need to do. I know as someone who cheered for Nets teams that were bad and then for Nets teams that were kind of good and then for Nets teams that made the NBA Finals, it's the one in the middle that I remember the most fondly. It's the ones where you feel like it's maybe starting to turn into something. And once you get to the point where your team is maybe competing for something, you're just like a butthead like everybody else and you're like crying about the refs and you want them to, you know, whatever. Like, you got to win a chip. Like, you're nothing without a chip, which is stupid. Like... Especially, I think that period of like sort of awakening from a team that's been in a coma for 20 years and they start doing normal sports team things, like treasure the experience. Like this is, that's the good shit. That's like the part of it that like, I think is maybe even like when you talk to like Warriors fans, the team that like, they won a bunch of championships, they got a lot out of that. That like Baron Davis team that beat the Jazz, that's the team that they Yeah, like, that team was awesome. I, yeah. I, it's hard. Uh for our man, it's hard if you if you are a long-suffering fan, I know this firsthand, not to feel like a chump when you get your hopes up. So yep. to that end, I do have to note that as of this recording, the Mariners are in third place in the AL West. They are 12-12, <laughs> and 12, and uh, they are 4-6 and six in their last 10 games. So that I hope that is not an ominous portent uh, for our man's sake. But it is, it is possible that maybe this isn't their year, but it's always more fun to be hopeful yeah, it's not closer to, to being their year than than two years ago was. So that's nice. Brandon Nix and Chantel Holder are our producers. Nora Ritchie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. Thanks to Roth and Redford and me, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com too while you're at it. And also, there is a new... Uh, package for people who love normal gossip that podcast uh, is coming back and there's a special package for people who love normal gossip you can go to defective.com and learn all about it this week patrick redford you were a delight and thank you for explaining the nba playoffs to us we love our beautiful package. thanks for having me guys all right we'll see you all next week goodbye bye, bye.